Well, welcome back, motherfucker. Let's just hop right to it, and in a very big way, pick up exactly where we left off last time. Let's talk about the subsequent cascading social problems and pitfalls that we're pretty likely to encounter after we develop unhealthy brains per our early interpersonal associations. Where to begin? I guess I'd like to throw out this whole abuse is cyclical fact immediately and just say, mm-hmm, we see PTSD folk attract abusers. We allow abuse. We pass along abuse. And once the dynamic is established, it's nearly impossible for us to change. So do we suck up narcissists like we're magnetically charged opposites because we have no concept of boundaries or autonomous living? Yep, it feels like home. Do we also often become narcissists because of our defense mechanisms and egoic preservation efforts? Unfortunately, yes, also feels very much like home. Are there clear reasons why abuse happens on repeat? Completely. Emotional codependency and prefrontal offloading is a gateway drug. Dive into some of the previous released more advanced relationship talks that we've been having on the private platform to learn all about abuse patterning, if that is your cup of trauma. But here, instead of going down that overplayed route, I mean, please, narcissism is so overemphasized and wrongly accused right now. How about we just talk about something that all abusers demand as the basis of our interactions, as well as a social behavior that we don't talk about nearly enough as a society, considering how much it's fucking up all of our heads? Fawning. Have you ever heard of it? I mean, likely, yeah, you have. But do you really know what it means on a practical, experiential level that would actually help you to stunt this pervasive survival response, which generally comes more subtly than the rest of them? Maybe not. I know that I didn't, at least until I emerged from the pandemic quarantine last summer and was immersed in social anxiety that would override my own best interests, creating these obsessive spirals and self-sabotage loops. So let's talk about it. Fawning is one of the four Fs, fight, flight, freeze, fawn. I happen to think there are some other Fs, such as fronting human superiority and feigning helplessness, but let's keep it simple today. Fawning is the response of putting yourself last and attempting to take care of others in whatever way might be necessary, like becoming whoever they need you to be every single moment doing whatever they need you to do second by second, saying whatever they need you to say so they can feel okay all the time, redirecting your attention and energy in any way deemed necessary just in order to keep the peace and reduce the likelihood of being punished. Not to mention predicting the ways that their brain is going to work 
so that you can execute any of those operations before they even say anything out loud. So reading their mind, people-pleasing, codependence, and rejection avoidance to the nth unhealthy, absolutely unreasonable degree. The problem is, besides all of that, we think that these are normal ways to be. We get this confused with being thoughtful, being a quote, good person, which is a term that I hate, by the way. So this is the challenge. How do you know if you're fawning rather than just being a decent human in a relationship? Well, I personally think that the proof is in the motivation. You will have a fear response. The fawning action will be driven by anxiety. It might even overtake your logical thinking ability, and you'll find yourself automatically, sometimes foolishly, going to extreme measures to bend over backwards for someone's demands or the anticipation of their demands. You might not be able to escape the pattern once it starts, thereby losing hours and so much energy to worrying about what you can and can't do right. Fawning is all about predicting and reacting to someone's brain before their cognitive or emotional pattern even runs its course, as dictated by a sense of shaky internal fear. This is why we might become the most prolific fawners when we aren't even in the same environment as the subject of our personal pleasing. Sometimes distance and silence are the biggest triggers of fawning behaviors because in the absence of information, we'll always tend to assume the worst. Ambiguity is anxiety and obsession for us. And therefore, as you probably can guess already, fawning often causes us to engage in something else that we absolutely don't love. Anxious attachment. When we fear abandonment because we absolutely fear being on our own, we're very prone to fawn. We believe that we can just do good enough and it will erase the threat of being socially disconnected. So we'll work endlessly to reach that perfectionistic ideal which, of course, is unending and absolutely unobtainable. If we don't hear back from them, we just have to try harder. If we do hear back from them, we can reassess how to be the best supporter possible with their continual direction now that this new information has been offered forth. Nothing is really ever enough to prove to us that we are worthy of their love, attention, acceptance, or affection, because we imagine that all relationships are fickle and on the verge of dissipating. Plus, we imagine that we're worth abandoning as soon as they have any single disappointment. So we obsess over them. Who? Everyone. Family, romantic partners, friends, teachers, co-workers, even professionals whose services we seek. Here's looking at you, fuckers who are inappropriately attached to their therapists and take counseling sessions to be more like graded assignments. 
you name them, we will fawn over them. I think at the root of it, we also act this way because we think everybody is more important than us, more worthy than us, and more capable than us. We're lucky just to be allowed around them. So if we can serve them, maybe we'll have enough utility not to be kicked out of the tribe. And you know where that training probably started? Most likely at home. I'm going to guess that if you're a fawner, your family narrative was one in which they were more important than you, and you were given positive regard occasionally for performing in some way or another that benefited them. As an achiever, a servant, an emotional crutch, an inappropriate confidant, you were likely also a scapegoat when things didn't go well or punished when you didn't live up to every unspoken demand. And you were taught that you should idolize and protect people rather than seeing yourself as equals or trusting that they could actually just handle their own shit. The result? Creating a little brain that's desperate for social reinforcement and lacks the automatic reinforcement of serving a sense of self or building self-esteem to congratulate themselves on a job well done. Also, a mind that's especially fearful of everything it does and doesn't enact. Because you probably know, it's not enough to follow all of the house rules. It is also actually necessary to assume that there are a thousand and one changing, undisclosed personal standards that are going to bring down the hammer if they're neglected. There is no relief because punishment isn't actually based on your actions. It's based on the emotional flinging of people who need external reasons to understand why they are internally upset. And what does that leave us with? Uh, Reliance on everyone else to make us feel safe, worthy, or even permitted to exist. A desperate need to show up and support everyone. To be useful. To avoid making all errors. Although they're not even restricted by the limitations of time, knowledge, or logic. Hypervigilant perfectionism especially when it comes to our personal associates, and probably, subsequently, a history of abusive interactions on repeat because, unfortunately, that fawning instinct is really easy for other people to detect and take advantage of. How? By your instincts to serve, your impulse to give up your own opinions and desires, your tendency to react anxiously if any outside negativity is even hinted at in the least. So yes, abusers can sense abusees. You were both cut from the same cloth. Each just wound up adopting a different side of the original interaction as their general mode of operation. Yeah, again, I know, I speak about it with a very cavalier tone at this point, but I know that that's pretty upsetting to hear. And I also know that focusing on fawning is kind of an unusual choice for a 
broad, general CPTSD conversation when, let's face it, there are so many other complaints that could be focused on. But I tell you all of this because, honestly, everybody was pretty shocked when I talked about it last time a few months ago. I think I sent a lot of folks back to therapy with a whole new intention. Let's fix this fawning bullshit. Uh, Yeah, it turns out it's been destroying a lot of people's lives. And seriously, the commonality of this survival F is because this pattern is incredibly common. The narrative in our entire society that this is normal is really pervasive. We probably haven't really heard otherwise before. Well, I have to say, it may be the social standard, but as usual, it's not actually good for most of us. You know who benefits from some of us being a subservient everyone pleaser? Everyone else. Like... Your significant other, your roommate, your job, your neighbor, your government, your family. It's a great deal for them. So let's talk real quickly about the shadows of this social trauma. Do you ever wonder why your energy gets so drained, your brain gets so anxious, and your life falls to shambles before, during, or after interactions with like, most of your human associates, it's probably because there are similar less than ideal dynamics at play that suck all the energy out of your desired or necessary mental processes and continually reallocate your attention to worrying about others instead. If you've ever felt guilty or concerned about forgetting you should be thinking about someone else, Even if it's in an unpleasant, I should be worrying about this, even though I can't actually do anything about it, sort of way, you might be a default fawner. Nice to meet you. Me too. And you also might have no idea how unnecessary and unhealthy it all is, because your whole life you've been convinced that this is the only way to exist. Think along the lines of, If you have time to do X, Y, and Z, you obviously have time to do A, B, C, D, E, F, and G for me. Why did you miss that email last night at 9 p.m. when you could have been prepared to deal with this unpredictable thing that happened? Don't you even care about me or this job? If you aren't thinking about me, what were you even thinking about? Answer to all of these things. I don't know, literally any of the trillions of other things that I could have been using my mental power to understand, assess, or enact for myself. But fawning demands don't care about logic or personal limitations. Whether we're talking about work or that honey you're banging, it is all the same brain patterning. It is everywhere. And that's really the basis of why this whole fawning trap is so ridiculous for us to figure out. At the root of it, someone or something or some organization is demanding that they have control of your neural activations every moment of every day, literally stating that your brain is not for you to use, it's for me to use, 
all the time. And this probably started at our moment of birth. And yo, yeah, obviously that is what we define as mental abuse. But we tend to sweep it under the rug because it's just so commonly accepted that this is the way for at least some people to consistently act as servants of everyone else across the board forever. Have you ever tried to tell people that you didn't want to engage with your family, your abusive boss, or your behind-the-scenes super toxic romantic partner? Have you ever felt them shove you right back into the situation with some recital of traditional values that apparently define your worth on this planet? I'm guessing they'll all tell you, yeah, this is the right way of doing things. You should feel like that. You want to have control of your own thinking process, emotions, and actions based on what you want to do. What, do you think that you're somehow special? Just play along. It's what we all do, and it'll make everybody else happier and keep the peace. Thus resulting in another round of shame, which then cements the idea that we are selfish assholes forever caring about ourselves, even one one hundredth as much as we anxiously spiral every single day about all others. We give up our own emotional and learning processes over and over again for this entire effort. We create mental strain that results in mental illness, and then our lives continue down this road forever as the social echo chamber insists that this is what, quote, good people do. Anyways, that's fawning. Next time, we're going to pick up back here and discuss the perhaps most difficult portion of this trauma talk, but also probably the most healing part of all of it as well. You know that PTSD cornerstone, loss of continuous sense of self? Do you actually know what that means? Because I definitely did not. Until I realized that is what pulled me out of my trauma trap in the first place a few years ago and gave me the gumption I needed to change everything. It turns out the basis of getting a lot of our trauma work done, of rewiring our brains and resetting our lives on the right track, and then continuing on that track day after day after day, might actually be the least defined of all of the trauma downstream effects and common mental health downfalls. It's forgetting who you are at your core over an extended period of time, independent of the neural programming we've harped on so heavily so far, and then using that information to rewrite how you feel about everything that's happened so you know how you actually want to redesign everything that's still to come. Are you ready to take a dive into something that honestly might change how you understand everything that's ever happened to you and your brain? It's pretty empowering. It's your prefrontal cortex's five-star special. Having a construct of self. But, uh... If you just want to dive into more of this fawning, sinking, enmeshment, and emotional abuse talk, 
or want to jump straight into all of this brain-based, body-based, self-enclosed system discussion, well, you know where you can go do that right now, too. We have been at it all year in 2021, particularly during this past summer of re-emerging into social living after that pandemic time out and realizing (laughs) other humans really fuck me up. Holy shit. No. You can go hit up the backlog of episodes with all of these deep diving trauma details that we have already covered. It is $5 to get the full cultivated collection of stories here so far, and you can find it at patreon.com slash traumatized motherfuckers. You can also jump into the private support community for people who talk a bit dark and snarkily about all of this PTSD recover experience while you are there. It's available through patreon.com to get to the private traumatized motherfucker discord community server. I'll see you there. In the meantime, don't fawn yourself into a fucking disaster of a hellscape. You can control your own actions. You're allowed to direct your own brain activities every day. And you don't have to worry about supporting everyone else more than you can even support your motherfucking self. Cheers, y'all.